Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. Well, I'm privileged and honored to be here. I really am. Um, I'm always thrilled to share my experience, strength, and hope that I found in Jesus Christ through my journey of recovery from alcoholism. God challenged me last summer to publicly share my story of recovery outside of recovery meetings. This year, apparently, I'm going to go global on this broadcast here, or podcast here, so I, I, I guess that's the new challenge. But anyway, um, but I just want you to know that today really is a divine appointment. This is my prayer book for today, and I opened it up to March 24th, and the first thing that it's told me was, strength comes from honestly telling your own experiences with drinking. Wow. How about that? <clears throat> And I also want to say, just as a little housekeeping uh, matter before I get started, because if we run out of time and I forget, at the end of my presentation, I'd like to give away a life recovery Bible to someone who needs it. So the first person who comes up and asks me for it, and you tell me why you need it, I'm going to give it to you, okay? Um, But my prayer for today is found in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Out of the mud and mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see that he, what he has done and be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord, and that's my prayer for today. Okay. Well, I'm 54 years old. I have two kids, adult children, Jordan and Mackenzie. They're the joy and the light of my life. They both live in the Chicago area. My son graduated from college, and he lives in downtown Chicago. My daughter is a sophomore at Wheaton College, so at least they're in the same area. I get to see them at the same time. Um, Due to the constraints of time, my my program, my talk is usually over an hour, but I understand I don't have an hour, so I'm going to jump into my story in January 2013 when I found myself in full-blown alcoholism and facing an ultimatum to get help or to lose my family, and believe me, that was a huge wake-up call. You didn't have to tell me twice. Um, There's no alcoholism in my family history, which makes me a little bit different. I had the perfect upbringing. I had a loving Christian home. I had everything I wanted and needed. I had the best education, cars. um, You know, we had everything that you could ask for. I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ at the age of 12. I went to church, um, and my life was really perfect. It was. Um, I went to college, got my master's degree, got my law degree, became an attorney. I married someone that I had grown up with. Um, we had been friends since we were childhood, since we were kids. We had our two children. We settled, settled into our lives. I worked at our church. I was active in the music program, vacation Bible study, you know, all those things. And I will tell you that regretfully I'm going through a, through a divorce right now from my husband of 27 years. But he is a huge part of my story. He saved my life. And for that reason, you will hear me talk about him. My serious descent into alcoholism started, as you heard, back in 2010, and I I faced a series of very serious crises in my life. My daughter was seriously injured in a sledding accident, which caused me to have to quit my job and stay home and take care of her. It was extremely stressful. She was only 11 years old. My sister was going through a divorce. My parents were facing moving from their um, longtime home into a retirement home. And there was a domestic violence incident involving my mother and my sister, which was extremely, um, it caused family upheaval, and it's still causing family upheaval, believe it or not. And my, my son was in trouble at school. Um, I faced an abusive boss. And so I had my tentacles in all these situations in, in my life. And the problem was uh, I was trying to manage and control all those situations, but I lost control of the one person that I could control, and that was me. And so um, alcohol became my solution, my medication. 
the way that I decided that I could, I would cope through all those situations and all those crises. And to boot, on top of it all, I started combining it with drugs, benzodiazepines, marijuana, and all the things that just made it worse. And to say that I blew through all the stop signs is an understatement. Um, just so you know, I qualify to be here. Um, I forgot that I was married. I forgot that I had children. My life was completely unmanageable. It was a hot mess, as the kids like to say today, I think. I found myself passed out, blacked out every night. I, I was not available to anybody in my life. I didn't go to any of my kids' programs at school, none of their games, none of their activities. I was gone for days, and nobody knew where I was. I would show up randomly at friends' house, restaurants, local businesses, and they would just pick up my phone and say, and call somebody on my phone to say, come and get me. Um, I would wake up and not remember where I'd been the days before that. I didn't know where my car was. Um, you get the picture. Um, I was hiding alcohol everywhere, inside my house, outside my house, neighbors' houses, the tree down the street. <laughs> and I ruined lots of family events with my behavior. I was violent. Um, I yelled and screamed. The police were called numerous times. I hurt the people the closest to me, that's for sure. I was drinking 24-7. I was sleeping with alcohol, so that way when I woke up, I'd be able to get back to sleep. I carried it in my purse. I hid it in my car. I drove drunk. I deserved a DUI. It's only by the grace of God that I did not get one or that I didn't kill anybody. I was stealing alcohol from stores. So hopefully you get the picture. My life really was a mess because of alcohol. But yet I still thought it was a solution to my problems. My health suffered. I gained 40 pounds. I contracted a virus that caused me to lose my voice. I couldn't talk for six months. I thought I was going to have to have surgery on my vocal cords. They were paralyzed. The thing that I loved to do my whole life was sing. It was gone. That gift was gone. I lost my sense of smell and taste. My blood pressure was up. My liver was swollen, and I rotted out a couple of my teeth. Our finances were in jeopardy. We had to get a second mortgage on my home because of my drinking and the money that I spent on alcohol. I was confronted by a string of friends and family members about my behavior because I embarrassed so many people for so long. I had people texting me, calling me, emailing me, showing up on my doorstep and telling me about my behavior. And my answer was always the same. I can stop anytime I want to. I just don't want to. Or this is a phase I'm going through. When things get better, I will stop. And I really believe that, but privately, I knew I couldn't, and I prayed to God hundreds and hundreds of times, please remove this from me. I really believed, I had faith that God could take that from me anytime He wanted to, because I heard many people tell me that that had happened to them, that miraculously God had just removed that desire to drink, and so I knew He would do that, and I just figured, well, when that day comes, He'll do it, and He just isn't doing it. I knew that I needed help, but I did not know where to turn. So finally, like I said, in January of 2013, my husband confronted me. It was the family or it was my alcohol. And I checked myself into Edwin Shaw. I spent 30 days there in a residential treatment program and then in a 90-day group therapy program. And after six months, I finally graduated <laughs> from that program. It took me a while. I, I couldn't function as an attorney anymore. I should back that up and say that... <coughs> I stopped working in 2013. There's no way I could function as a lawyer, and I really didn't think that I would ever be able to do that again. But anyway, in order for me to 
um, kind of do something with myself. I went to work at a local restaurant, went to work at a Chick-fil-A. One of my friends there, who's also an attorney, um, was an operator of that restaurant, and he told me that he would give me a job. And so I worked at Chick-fil-A part-time, and that helped me to manage my recovery program because it was taking a lot of time out of my life. And I, I got a year in, and in January of 2014, I decided, um, well, gee, I don't need this anymore. I'm doing really well. I stopped going to recovery meetings. I stopped meeting with my sponsor. And I decided that I was well again. I could safely drink once again. And so I decided that I would go out and buy some alcohol and I would start hiding from my family. And guess what happened? Um, one day my daughter found the, the, the alcohol that I was hiding because everyone could tell that I was drinking. I was the only one who thought I was hiding it from the rest of the family. But they could tell because all of my same behavior started to emerge again. I started acting crazy and they knew something was wrong and so my daughter started searching through the house and she found my bottles. And I am not kidding you, this is the absolute truth. In five minutes, I was out in the front yard of my house in the snow with nothing but my purse and my car keys and I was told, don't ever come back here again. We never wanna see you again because clearly you're not serious about your sobriety. And I wasn't. At that time, I didn't have any idea what I was going to do, so I got in my car and I drove down the street about a half a block and I pulled over to the side of the road and I did the only thing that I knew to do at that point and I called the, the crisis hotline at my church. And a gentleman answered the phone by the name of Paul Whitus, Pastor Paul Whitus, who just so happens to be the director of our Celebrate Recovery program at the church. And he said, Cheryl, if you go check yourself into detox when you get out, I will help you. And so that's exactly what I did. I went down to Akron City Hospital and I checked myself into detox. But I didn't just go straight to detox. Because guess what I did on the way there? I stopped and I bought a bottle of alcohol. And I got in there and I was sitting in the waiting room and they, you know, I checked in and I thought, well, you know what, while they're waiting to call my name, I'm going to go in the bathroom, I'm going to drink this bottle of alcohol. And that was January 7th of 2014, and I drank that bottle, and I put it in the garbage, and I said, this is the last drink I'm ever going to take, and it was, and it is. I had to, <clears throat> I had to confront that garbage can this last May. My father was um, admitted into the hospital, and I went to visit him, and I went to use the restroom, and I went into that same restroom, not intentionally. But I went to that same restroom and I looked at that garbage can and I said, I'm so grateful that five, well, almost five years ago that, that that's the last drink I ever took because it reminded me of where I never want to be again. So there I was in detox. I was in detox on my 22nd wedding anniversary and I thought my life was over. I really did. I thought I had nothing to live for. My greatest pleasure had become my prison. I lost everything that was important to me. I lost my family. I lost my job. On my way to detox, I called my boss and I said, told him what happened. And he said, well, when you get out of detox, give me a call. But he made no promises that I'd get my job back. I had no money. I didn't know how I was going to live at that particular moment. But I, I, I was in detox, and I really did. I looked out the window, and I thought my life was over. And I met a lady there, Dr. Nicole Labor, who... She's the director of addiction medicine at Summa Health. She's also the director of addiction medicine at Interval, Brother Home, Interval Brotherhood Home, otherwise known as IVH, an organization that I'm proud to serve on the board. But I met her, and she shared her personal story of recovery with me, and that gave me hope for the first time. That gave me hope that if I could, if she could do it, I could do it. Here sat in front of me a doctor 
who was able to share her recovery story with me. If she could do it, I could do it. But she told me that I have to stay sober and I have to stay sober one day at a time. So I got discharged from there and had to go through a whole new assessment and I was assessed to go through another round of treatment. So this time I went through treatment right there at Summa Hospital and just just when I, I, I didn't think it could get any worse, I had to go home to get my clothes. To, my, my husband was, was going to let me come back into the house to get a, a new set of clothes before I went back into treatment. And I went in there to get my clothes, and there sat a letter on my uh, nightstand from my daughter, and it was a goodbye letter. It was, I hope I never see you again. I'm going to treat you as if you were dead, and I, hope you, and, I, and I wish you were dead. And I didn't think it could get any, get any worse than that, but that was the worst that it ever got for me, that I would read a goodbye letter from my daughter. And from there, I went to a sober house. I had a, a social worker that met with me when I was in the hospital, and she referred me to a sober house. So I, I took my clothes, and I went to the sober house, and I sat there. I call it the rat hole. It was filthy. There were bugs. It was dirty. It was loud. It was a bad neighborhood. And I sat there, and I said over and over and over to myself, how could, I be, how could I be so stupid? How did I let my life get like this? And that was my moment of clarity, my rock bottom, my gift of desperation. Rock bottom is when you stop digging, when the fear of change is outweighed by the fear and the pain of the consequences of staying the same, and that's exactly where I was. I had that moment of clarity as I was sitting there. I was willing to do whatever it took to turn my life around. And somewhere over the course of the next few days, I found myself at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started going to meetings every day, all day. is all I had to do. And as I sat at this one particular meeting... And we, of course, I was crying and telling my story. And there was this young lady there. I'll never forget her as long as I live. I don't know her name, but I'll never forget her face. And she said to me, Cheryl, the reason why this is happening to you is because God wants you to learn that your relationship with Him is the only thing you need in your life. And that even if your family were dead, you'd be okay if He was the only thing you had. And don't ask me why, but something about that, what she said, that turned the key that unlocked the door. The lights went on and it all made sense to me. That's exactly why this was happening to me. And I immediately accepted it. And I went home and I prayed the prayer that Hosea prayed. Lord, break up the fallow ground of my heart. It's time for me to seek you again and to return to you. And so that's what I did. And so began the journey of living alone with the singular goal of making my relationship with the Lord the number one priority in my life, even if I never got my family back and that it would be enough. So I was back in treatment, um, like I said, at St. Thomas Hospital. I was in a new IOP group, and I had a, a new therapy. And for the first time in my life, as I went through this program, I finally understood what I didn't understand before, and that's that I have the disease of alcoholism. It's an ism and not a wasm, because I'm never going to get over it. I'm not going to graduate. I'm not going to get a diploma. I will never be able to drink normally again. I'm not a bad person trying to be good. I'm a sick person trying to get well. But I have a disease. And if you think it's a moral failure, I'm here to tell you it's not. It's a disease. I have brought some materials with me today, and I sat them over here on the left. I'm not going to go into a big discussion about that right now because I don't have time. But if you have any questions about that, the disease aspect of alcoholism, I've got some materials over here. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the bottom line is alcoholism is a broken pleasure system. That dopamine dump that you get from drinking alcohol, it shuts down the reasoning center of your brain called the frontal cortex. And it wakes up and empowers what we call the midbrain, the survival 
comp, uh, cortex of your brain. And it basically says, I need alcohol to survive. If I don't get it, I'm not going to live. It tricks your brain into thinking that. And so that's what it means. It's a physical craving that is accompanied by a mental obsession. The physical craving is that inability to control how much you will drink at any given time. You can't just stop at one. The mental is obsession is that I'm just going to keep drinking regardless of the consequences. Okay, So you can't safely drink and you can't keep from drinking. Does that make sense? Can't safely drink, but I can't keep from drinking either. Treatment, on the other hand, <coughs> abstinence, don't drink. <laughs> But it's also that change in personality, the psychic change, the spiritual awakening. And that's what a lot of people don't get. And when I first heard that, I thought, wait a minute, I'm being sentenced to a life of eating my vegetables. How am I ever going to have fun again? Are you kidding me? You want me to stop drinking? How in the heck am I ever going to have fun? That's terrible. And what I realized is my problem is that I didn't, it, it, my problem was that I didn't have faith. I had faith in God. I'd grew, grown up in the church. Of course I had faith in God, but I wanted the world and Jesus too. Okay? I did not believe that God could offer me a better life than one that included alcohol. That's what I didn't believe. I didn't believe two truths that Jesus said about himself. John 10.10 says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he believes in me will never be thirsty. I didn't believe that Jesus was enough. I thought it was Jesus plus, Jesus plus alcohol. <laughs> and I was like two people in the Bible, okay? This is what he showed me that had faith problems. I was like the parable of the sower. Mark 4.19 says, <clears throat> this is describing certain people and how they respond to the word of God. This is, the, this is who I was. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and they choke the word, making it unfruitful. That was me, ladies. I grew up with so much privilege and I never knew what it was like to want or need anything. I wanted the country club life, the nice house, the cars, the vacations. I wanted my kids to be smart and good at everything. I wanted to be a successful lawyer. I wanted to wear all the right clothes and to be accepted. I wanted to play the comparison game, but comparison leads to discontentment and anxiety. Unmet expectations. I let my desire for alcohol and a worldly lifestyle take over, and it choked the word. The word of God could not take root in my heart and my life. And that's why I was not growing in my faith. That's number one. That's who I was. I was also like the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda. If you know that story? Here a great number of disabled people. This is in John 5. They used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he said, Do you want to get well, sir? And he said, Sir, I have no one to help me get in the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. See, that paralytic was depending on the worldly human solution for years, wasn't he? He was waiting for someone else to come along and help him. That's what we call insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. And that was me. Jesus 
though, was the only one who could help him, right? When Jesus came along, he was able to help him. And Jesus asked him to do two things. He said, I want you to trust me if you want to get well, and then you need to take action. You need to get up and roll up your mat. You know what his mat was? His mat was the thing that kept him comfortable when he was sick. <clears throat> and I had to do the same thing. If I wanted to get up off of rock bottom and be healed, I had to trust God, get up, take up my mat, and walk. My mat was my alcohol and all my twisted priorities. So I did, or God did exactly for me what he did for the disciples. And what I could not do for myself, he called me out of the only life that I had ever known, out of my comfort zone, all my relationships, my house, my job, my family, my friends, all that stuff. And he brought me into a new life of total dependence on him alone so that I could see that he was the only one who could help me. And the Bible says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that's exactly what he was asking me to do. I had no choice. I was about to find out. <laughs> but I wasn't without any promises because the Lord showed me Psalm 7120. And in my office today, I have a plaque with Psalm 7120 on it that my daughter made me because this is my life verse. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, I will restore your life. You will increase my honor and comfort me once again. I read that every day and I say it to myself because that was a promise that I clung to, that this wasn't the end of the line, that there was restoration, and that he would increase my honor and comfort me. And so the new life that I was led into was one of fellowship, faith, and service. I had to have a new recovery program. This was not something I could just pick it up and use it when I needed to. It was going to be like, you know, every day I take a pill for my thyroid problems. And if I don't take that pill, I start, I'm going to start to get sick. And that's the way it was with my recovery program. I couldn't just pick it up when I felt like it. It was going to have to be something that I did every single solitary day to manage my disease. It's going to have to be part of my daily life. And that was going to involve quite a few things that I'm going to, I'm going to run through here. Number one, the Bible talks about two weapons that we have against temptation. If I was not going to drink, that I was going to need help. Number one, the Word of God. Number two, prayer. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil, what was his answer all three times that the devil came to him? His answer was, it is written. He quoted back to Satan the scripture from the Old Testament. It is written. The Word of God is our weapon ladies against temptation, right? Prayer. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was just frustrated because the disciples had fallen asleep, he said, watch with me for just a little while. And they fell asleep and he came back to Peter and he said, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. So the word of God and prayer, and I needed to put those two things into action in my life if I was going to recover. And so my morning ritual then and now today is to get up to pray, to read my Bible. I have some recovery readings. This is just one of the, the books that I use. But I get up early in the morning, and I pray, and I read my Bible. And the reason why I do that early in the morning, a lot of people know this about me, but it's not just because it fits into my life. It's because that's what Jesus did. Mark one thirty five. Jesus got up early. He went out of the house to a solitary place where he prayed. There's something about the morning. I think if it was special to Jesus, then it's going to work for me. Psalm 5, verse 3 says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice, and in the morning I lay my request before you, and I wait expectantly. So there's something about the morning where I think God is just, He's just listening. He's listening all the time, but 
So I, I needed to activate the Word of God and I need to activate prayer. But the other thing that I needed to realize is my family was in recovery too. I wanted it all back. I wanted it all back right now. You know, I didn't understand why I was going to have to be separated from my family. Why in the world they didn't see that I was serious about my recovery now? And why couldn't I come home? Um, you know, what, what, what was wrong here? And, and what I needed to realize is that they're in recovery too. It's the principle of a mile in, a mile out. You know, I didn't get there overnight. It took me three, four years. I'm not going to get out of it overnight, and neither will they. And so I had to understand that, you know, the, the wind had stopped blowing, the, t the tornado had stopped, the wind had stopped blowing, but the trees were down. And, and, and there needed to be that time of reconstruction and healing for them. And so let me just tell you real briefly where they were at this point in time. My son Jordan, he was in college, and he is, I affectionately refer to him as my angel. Because if it had not been for him, there was no way that I would have been able to get through that. He was the only one in my family who was on my side and in my camp. I came out of my very first IOP meeting, and the phone rang, and it was Jordan. That was the first time I had heard from anybody in my family in several weeks. And he said, Mom, I just want to know how you're doing. I just want you to know I love you. And then I'm here to support you 100%. And if there's anything I can do to help you, I will. And that saved my life. One of the things that saved my life if he hadn't called me. And to this day, he's been such a critical, he's just been such a, a, an important person in my recovery. He <coughs> called me on a regular basis. I went to visit him back and forth. He became the only family member who wanted anything to do with me. He was my biggest fan and my biggest cheerleader, and he's my biggest cheerleader today. He never gave up on me. My husband was very distant and guarded, understandably. He would call me. He would come to meetings with me, but our conversations were very short. And he could uh, really only tolerate being around me for a very short period of time. My daughter absolutely didn't want anything to do with me. She was in counseling. Um, like I told you, she sent me a goodbye letter. And I had to just let that go. I wasn't allowed to see her. I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't text her. Couldn't attend any events at school. I missed her birthday. I missed Mother's Day. I missed the prom. I missed the spring musical. But one thing that I did do is I would write her a letter, probably about once a month I wrote her a letter and I told her I loved her and I was supporting her and praying for her. I didn't expect to hear back for her, from her. I sent her flowers. I just let her know that I loved her and I had to just let it go. Because you see, God wanted me to give up control of my children. And this is another thing that I had to learn, that I'd been making this mistake for 18 years. <laughs> Lamentations 2.19 says, pour out, your, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children. He wants you to let go of your children and let him take care of them. Isaiah 40, 11 says, He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gives wisdom to those who have young. And so I just began to pray, Lord, you gather my children up in your arms. You hold them close to your heart. And I lift up my hands to you and I give them to, to you. And I had to give up control of my children. The Lord gave me a new family. Alcoholics Anonymous became my family. My church became my family. I had a rock star sponsor um, who became my family. Chick-fil-A became my family. Chick-fil-A is like the Disneyland of fast food. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and it's still one of my favorite places to go. When I'm having a bad day and I feel bad, that's where I go to, for lunch or for dinner. Because um, really, believe it or not, they taught me everything I know about how to treat people and how to love people. Jesus gave me a new song, a song of gratitude. 
Gratitude is the antidote for grumbling. Ephesians 5, 8, 5, 18 through 10 says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs for yourselves, and making music to the Lord. And here it is. And give thanks for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I started keeping a gratitude journal. Here's my current gratitude journal. I carry this with me everywhere I go. This is maybe my fourth or fifth or sixth one since that time, but every single day I write down the things that I'm grateful for. Okay, so gratitude, ladies, it kills egoism. You know what egoism stands for? Ego, easing God out, right? It takes me out of self-pity. It takes me out of, and it reminds me of the many, many blessings that I have every day. You know what? I've never written it down here that I'm thankful for my stuff, my shoes or my house or anything like that. Um, it keeps my priorities straight, the spiritual versus the material. And so I encourage you, this is a very easy way to change your life. Send a thank you note every day to somebody in your life. I don't mean you have to physically write down uh, a note. Maybe you can just send a text message. Maybe it's just a pat on the back. Maybe it's saying to a colleague, thank you for helping me today, right? But send a thank you note every day. And then psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, worship music. You know, I try very hard. I know there's a lot of great music out there today, and I'm not knocking it, but worship music. Fill your spirit with the things that are going to feed your soul. But Jesus also gave me a new mind, and he gave me, um, if I was going to be victorious over alcoholism, I had to replace my thoughts and my actions, because you see, the only thing I ever thought about was drinking. The only thing I ever did was drink. So I was going to have to replace my thoughts and my actions, right? Romans 12.1 says, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4.22-24 says, just as you were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your mind. Put on the new self, which is created to be like God. And therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. So what is a new life? What's the old life? Is deceitfulness, right? So the new life must be honesty. Living a life of honesty. And for me, that was replacing a life of lies. Because I lied about everything, about what I was doing, where I was going. My whole life was a lie. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. So that also meant taking a daily inventory at the end of the day. God, how did I do today? Do I need to ask anybody for forgiveness? Do I need to make an amend? James 5.16, be honest with others too. So with God, self, and others, if I didn't say that. Be honest with God, be honest with self, be honest with others. I talked about being honest with God, but being honest with others. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You see, there's guilt associated with sin, and that destroys our fellowship with people because we want to hide from the people that we know we've wronged, right? So, But there's cleansing, that cleansing that comes from confession. It leads to the reestablishment of our fellowship with other people. It leads to reconciliation and restoration of our relationships. And so that confession. Philippians 4.8 says this about my thoughts how I was going to have to change my thinking. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, right, 
pure, lovely, and of good report. If there's any virtue, any praise, think on those things. Galatians 5.22 says this about what I, how I'm supposed to live. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So see, I'm supposed to think about and do all those things. And I had a Sunday school teacher one time who told me, you know, if you just do the do's, you don't have to worry about the don'ts. And so here, I don't have to focus on my weaknesses. If I just do these things, all the things that are good and they're right and they're lovely, that are loving, kind, gentle, patient, just focus on trying to do those things every day. I won't have time to do all the bad stuff. <laughs> right? And so that became what I call, I affectionately call that that is the list. It's like, what am I doing on the list today? If I just stick to the list, then I won't have to worry about anything that's not on the list. I certainly don't have it right. Let me tell you, I'm not fixed. That's for sure. But the only thing that I'm going to take with me is my legacy of good deeds. So what am I proud of? What do I want to be proud of? What do I want my children to be proud of? What am I going to take with me when I go? What are people going to say about me? And if it's not on the list, then it's wrong. I need to throw it out. The other thing that Jesus taught me, and boy, oh boy, this is the hardest thing for me, and that's that I need to be quiet. I need to shut up. <laughs> Proverbs 17, 27 and 28, a truly wise person uses few words. The heart of the godly is even-tempered. And he says over in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Some translations say quiet. You need only be quiet. So again, the Lord was telling me, shut up. Not every thought requires an action. Not every thought requires a response. Really, if I just say nothing, most of the time I'm better off. I've regretted my words many times. I've never regretted my silence. Okay, And that refers not only just to what comes out of my mouth, but all the, the social media, the texting, the Facebooking, and the conversations, right? Like I said, I'm not fixed yet. The other day I was in the Acme store. This is my embarrassing moment of the week. And, you know, there are, there are young people now that work there in the checkout area, and they're talking to each other. The clerk is talking to the bagger kid, and they're just talking away, not paying any attention to me and what they're doing, and it's taking forever, and there's people in line. And I said to, I looked at them, and I said, I think you guys really, you need to get working and stop talking to each other. <laughs> and the lady behind me, her eyes got big as saucers, and she looked at me and she says, that's my daughter. Oh. <laughs> I'm not fixed yet. <laughs> Why did I say anything? <laughs> anyway, so this is no joke. Friday morning, I walked into that Acme store, and that lady came out, and she looked at me, and she said, you know what, you said the right thing. I probably should have said that, too. But nonetheless, you get my point. <laughs> I'm not fixed yet. <laughs> but the other thing, the last thing that I want to say is God called me to a life of service to others. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, do nothing out of self selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Right away, when I got into recovery, the Lord gave me an opportunity to go on a missions trip to Rome. This was in summer of 2015, and I thought, how in the world am I possibly qualified to do that? Look at my life's a mess. And Pastor Whitus, the gentleman I referred to earlier, said, no, you'd be perfect for that, because Cheryl, you understand exactly what it means to be broken and hurt and at the end of your rope, just like all these people that we're going to go talk to. And that was exactly true. 
got out on that mission field. Nobody knew that I was an alcoholic. Nobody cared. And it was the best thing that I'd ever done. And so he called me into a life of service to others. I do rec uh, recovery service work today. I continue to volunteer at SUMA Health System in the detox ward there occasionally. I also uh, am a guest speaker at their IOP meetings. As I mentioned before, I'm on the board of um, Interval Brotherhood Home, IVH, the largest uh, residential recovery center in Summit County. But also, most importantly, is the work that I do every day as a magistrate. I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say 50% of the people who stand in front of me in my courtroom every day struggle with substance abuse. You know, and it used to be that I was embarrassed to talk about it, but now I don't let one day go by and not one person come in or out of my courtroom struggling with this disease that I don't say, hey, you know what? You're looking at someone who is exactly like you, and if I could do it, you can do it, and here's how I did it. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity today. And this is where I also want to pause and say, um, the Lord gave me a new job, which you already know about. But in summer of 2015, I decided that maybe, just maybe, I could become a lawyer again. And I saw an ad in the University of Akron uh, School of Law newsletter advertising for a job with Judge Katerina Cook, who's with me today. And I said, well, I'm going to apply for that job. I won't get it. But I got it. And... <laughs> Not only did I get it, but when I disclosed to her that I was an alcoholic and I thought, man, this is going to be terrible, this is going to go badly. It did not only did it not go badly, it went great because she accepted me with open arms. She was glad that I was an alcoholic because she just so happened to run the OVI court and thought maybe I could encourage some of those people or help her to learn how to understand and, and to, to manage some of those people. And I was able to do that. Not only that, but she took me with her when she won her seat on the domestic relations court, brought me in as her judicial attorney and, and appointed me to the position where I am right now. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. And so I always want to take the opportunity when I share my story to thank her publicly for what she did. And she gave me the opportunity. And she's been one of my best friends and biggest supporters of my recovery. And so I thank you and I love you. I would not be here without you. I would not. Well, the end of my story is, as you probably figured out, with my daughter came back into my life, not because of anything that I did, but because of prayer and because of what the Lord did in her heart. Because you see, the Bible says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's what I prayed for her, and the, and the Lord worked on her heart. And so in September of 2015, I was sitting at my I was sitting just at, at somebody's house with a group of girlfriends having coffee one day, and there was a knock on the door, and somebody came back and said, Cheryl, it, the door, it's for you. I was like, for me? I'm not even at my house. And <laughs> who, who, who could that be? And so I went to the front door, and there stood my daughter, Mackenzie, and she said, hi, Mom, would you like to have coffee? And, of course, I said yes. And that be was the beginning of what we call our coffee dates. And we started having coffee together. We started to get to know each other again, and one thing led to another. I was able to come back to the home here and there and start having meals, celebrating holidays and birthdays and special events. She and I went on a trip together for spring break the next year and um, started getting to counseling together. One thing led to another, and finally in July of 2016, I was able to come home. 
And our relationship today is better than it has ever been. She's one of the strongest Christians I know. She challenges me every day, but she also supports me in my recovery uh, wholeheartedly. And we, we, we still, like I said, we still have our coffee dates. She was home from on spring break last week, and we made sure we got in our coffee dates. But only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord, because I wasn't involved in any of that. That was only the Lord. So I think I'm done. Um, life isn't free from challenges, I will say that. Um, I've had my challenges in recovery. I had back surgery last year, um, in January of last year, to remove a spinal tumor. And in the year prior to that, I was in the most pain I've ever been in in my entire life. I spent a lot of time laying on the floor, didn't I, uh, with uh, ice packs and, and heating pads, but I didn't drink. I didn't drink. And because of that, I was able to get involved in an exercise program and finally lose all the weight that I had gained. And so that was actually a blessing. But that was a challenge in my life. And as I mentioned before, unfortunately, my marriage did not survive the challenges of um, my recovery and all the things that went on. Um, but I, di I, I didn't drink. And, you know, Jesus, even Jesus, when he was grieving the death of John the Baptist, he fed the 5,000. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was on his way to the cross, he healed the centurion. And see, ministry goes on no matter what challenges we're facing in our lives. So like I said, um, I'm going to give away this Bible to anyone who comes up and asks me for it afterwards. But that's all I have, and I thank you for listening. Does anyone have any questions that they would like to ask at this time? I beg your pardon? Oh, okay. Um, how can I help? How can you support someone who's struggling with alcohol? And it depends on where they are. First of all, and this is hard for people, don't enable. Don't make their life easier. Don't pay their bills. Don't feed them. Don't make excuses for them. Do for them what my husband did for me. It was the greatest act of love. <clears throat> you know, kick them out of the house. Don't support them. Make them, give, give them that gift of desperation. Okay? And certainly help them get treatment if they want it. You know, there's a, I can give you some information about that. And actually, some of the information that I provided over here um, is a database for local treatment. But help the person get treatment. If they don't want treatment, don't make their life any easier. Don't enable. But also, just as a friend, I will tell you, um, the people who <clears throat> supported me the best through my, my drinking times didn't judge me. They didn't call me out. They didn't show up on my doorstep. They didn't text me. They just loved me and supported me. Told me they'd be there when they needed when I needed them. And so, um, they really didn't do a whole lot. They didn't say a whole lot, but they were just there, and I knew that they were there without judgment. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.